Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. And this is Kimberly with Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And I'll say that one more time. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. We are not here to tell you what to think, and we definitely are not here to tell you how to think. You know, what we're encouraging is critical thinking. We are encouraging, you know, um, fair critiques, challenging, you know, different narratives that are out there, asking questions. We definitely want to encourage you to ask questions about everything that happens, you know, in every area of your life. And that is what I have been stating from day one. And, you know, I'm proud to still be saying that same thing five years later. So, you guys, a lot has been happening. My last show was two weeks ago, and I was talking about all black women matter. And, you know, that still holds true today. And there's a lot more that I want to take on as far as, you know, the plantation politics series is concerned. Next Sunday, we're going to do All Black Lives Matter, All Black Lives Matter. And with that, I'm going to talk about, you know, I'm going to go more more in depth about Donald Trump with his comments about black people being poor and destitute. And it's really interesting because, you know, while I disagree with the narrative that he painted, that we're all walking around with, you know, holes in our shoes and tattered clothing, you know, we do have to face the reality that the black community or communities of color in general have been underdeveloped on purpose. And while only 25, 24, 25% of the black population probably could feel the narrative that Donald Trump is talking about. Overall, we are in trouble. We are in serious trouble. And again, our communities have been underdeveloped on purpose. And, you know, again, I spoke briefly about how some of our economic woes in this country, and I'm talking about the country as a whole, would definitely be fixed if there was a level playing field. And there have been studies after studies that have shown that if we had, you know, economic parity, racial parity, that this country would definitely be on the plus side. You know, we it actually would save money. And so it's interesting, but, you know, again, we have Donald Trump and his White Lives Matter movement And it doesn't matter if they were to give us an extra penny a year, you know, you have certain populations that would be extremely upset. So, you know, we'll go more into that next year, not next year, next week. We will look at it from a micro level as well as a macro level. But, you know, definitely we will be talking about all black lives mattering and getting more in depth with that. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm excited to have Christopher Everett on the show today. He was the director of Wilmington on Fire. And let me give you all a brief synopsis of this documentary that I'm definitely encouraging you guys to go and see. 
They've been doing showings all over the country. But Wilmington on Fire chronicles the bloody attack on the African-American community and unseated elected officials in the port city of Wilmington, North Carolina. And this happened on November 10, 1898. The massacre and coup d'etat was the springboard for the white supremacy movement and Jim Crow segregation throughout the state of North Carolina and the American South, that Bible Belt. And so this is our second conversation with Mr. Everett. And in the first conversation, you know, we covered what, you know, he did in the movie, but I definitely want him to expound on that today. But he was encouraging all of you all to go and look in your own backyard where you live. And, you know, there are numerous stories and events like this. And one event I can tell you about was Central Park, New York. That was the, one of the first, if not the first, um, black city established by slaves. And what happened is the city, you know, decided that that was a blight, and this is what happens all across this country. When you have poor neighborhoods and they decide that it's a blight, this is where urban planning comes in because they, they will stick a highway or something else, or park, or what have you, right through that part of town. And that's what happened with that city, you know, that was doing very well. And, you know, again, (laughs) they built the park on top of it. And, you know, you still have places where they're finding the artifacts, not only in New York, but in other places. I mean, I'm sure most of you all have heard of Black Wall Street, you know, Tulsa and Rosewood and a number of other places, Los Angeles, Chicago. This has happened all throughout this country. And so this is why we, you know, we encourage you guys to go out and read some of this history. So you're going to learn a lot today on this show. If you go and you listen to the other show, you'll hear when Mr. Everett was talking about how, you know, even to this day, when they find deeds that state that that property was owned by the black people, is shredded and or burned because they don't want to give that property back. However, there have been some developments since we spoke with Mr. Everett, and I guess that's probably where we should start, and then we can backtrack a little bit, you know, regarding, you know, your film, which, you know, I, I am sure I can't wait until it's, it's released to the masses so that they can see, you know, all of this information and what happened. But last since the last time that I spoke with you, Mr. Everett, Christopher, if you don't mind, um, you know, there have been some remuneration. So please tell us about this. Um, you know, since the last time we spoke, um, I think I was actually filming the film and getting it all together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now the film is is done. I've been on a like a film festival circuit tour tour circuit of showing the film all over the country in various yeah. you know outlets. But um, it's been a real real. Um, Exciting time right now, and especially um, few. Uh, I guess a few new developments have occurred while I've been pushing the film. I know one definitely is you know a lot of people are actually um, talking and discussing about reparations, um, exactly. especially for the eighteen ninety eight massacre. Now you know before then a lot of people you had a few people that might talk about it, but after seeing the film and seeing the hard cut concrete evidence of property theft and and the reasons 
you know, of doing this massacre, Jim Crow got started in North Carolina, throughout North Carolina, you know what I'm saying? And so uh-huh. a lot of people are actually talking about reparations on a serious level now, um, not only in Wilmington, but in various areas where we show the film. And also um, a few um, things have happened, I think, actually like within the past week of some of the names Excellent. of some of the people behind the 1898 massacre are getting removed from certain schools and, and, and um, government buildings now as well. And I think a lot of this stuff has happened because of what Wilmington on Fire is doing and what it has exposed, you know, the, the dark past and, um, you know, of white supremacy in the state of North Carolina. So those are some of the, the things that are, you know, been happening, you know, since November of, you know, us, you know, touring the film and stuff. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And, yes, you know, that's where I was gearing the conversation towards reparations because, you know, we all know what Ta-Nehisi Coates did when he did his piece in the Atlantic to basically build the case for reparations. And now you have universities that are now acknowledging their slave past, and they are going to give, you know, preferential treatment to the descendants of those particular slaves. And it's really interesting because, um, you know, Tressie, um, oh, my goodness, McCotton, she wrote a piece um, talking about, yes, you're going to give them, you know, um, preference, but you're not giving them reparations. And so, you know, what was lovely about that was Ta-Nehisi Coates retweeted that. So, yeah, that conversation is definitely you know, being put back on the table. You know, what I found unfortunate was after the passing of Johnny Cochran, they were working yeah. on that. They were working. With oh, the yeah. oh yeah, oh yeah, and a lot of people don't even don't even know about that. Never knew about. You know, Johnny Cochran was really working on a, a you know a case for them, and you know, exactly. so then you know all of a sudden he died. Yeah, (laughs) you know, I know, and the ones that are listening know, but, you know, hopefully, you know, this is reviving that because you have companies like large insurance companies. I'll give you one example, Allstate, you know, that definitely, you know, benefited from, you know, the slave trade. And so this is one of the reasons why you hear us going in on capitalism, because you cannot have capitalism without white supremacy. You cannot have capitalism without anti-blackness. You cannot have capitalism with, you know, without poverty. And, you know, try, and, and many, many more. That's just not, you know, that's, that's not the full definition or all the factors, but those are just a few of the ones that I wanted to bring up because this system you know, it needs to be dismantled and deconstructed. So, you know, we're going to move on, but I'm going to get back to that. But, yeah, congratulations, Christopher. Congratulations. We are definitely proud of you. And, you know, I know you've been working with some other directors and, you know, working on some other projects. And so, you know, before we get into Wilmington on Fire, do you mind sharing that with us? Well, I know I um – and I'm probably going to share it probably after next week, but the deal is pretty much um, official. I'm be I'm actually going to be doing I'm actually going to be doing a um, an experimental 
vampire-esque type of film. Oh. Uh, possibly uh-huh. will be my next project. And it's, it's, it's very weird. It's eclectic. Um, it's very art house style, you know what I'm saying? But mm-hmm. it has a deep, powerful message, you know, behind it. And I'll be, you know, dropping details and a press release on that probably after. I have two film festivals coming up as well. Um, film mm-hmm. Spark in Cary, North Carolina, and the North Carolina Black Film Festival in Wilmington, North Carolina. Both are at the same time next week, um, September 15th to the 18th. And after that, I'm going to send out a, a press release of this, you know, vampire film. And I can't really tell the, the title right now until, you know, after this, this paperwork is signed, you know, Tuesday to get everything official. Exactly. But uh, So that's pretty much the next project. And also I, I'm going to do the sequel to Wilmington on Fire. And it's going to be called Wilmington on Fire Exodus. And it's going to you know, go more in depth of what happened after the 1899. You know what I'm saying? How it just didn't affect the, the, the city of Wilmington, but just the whole state of North Carolina in general. You know, this whole white supremacy Excellent. movement, it was a statewide movement, and a lot of people don't really, you know, realize that. And also the other project that I have in development is um, a, it's a documentary about Victor Moore, and Victor Moore was the first um, – black world karate champion in the United States. And uh, he's, he's fought countless of people like um, Chuck Norris, Bruce Lee, um, a lot of top martial artists back in the day. He's con- pretty much considered the Jackie Robinson of martial art. But a lot of people don't even really know about him. You know, So you know, me and him, we've been talking for about a year, and we're going to start working on his project very soon as well. So those are the type of things that I got in the pipeline right now. Excellent, excellent, excellent. That sounds exciting. I'm looking forward to it all, especially this vampire-esque movie, (laughs) you know, um, because I love Octavia Butler and a number of other sci-fi, black sci-fi writers. And um, the last vampire But it's not like your stereotypical vampire type film, you know what I'm saying? It has some type of, (laughs) you know, art to it. You know, it's not like, exactly. you know, vampires running around, you know, killing people and stuff. It's not that way at all. You know, the vampires okay. are actually, you know, human. You know, they just drink blood, Ex- you know what I'm saying? So okay. it's a very interesting <laughs> project. But more details will be, you know, sent out, you know, after next week. So Excellent, excellent. I'm looking forward to hearing about that because we have to have you back. And, you know, talk about, you know, that project. But, um, yeah, you know, North Carolina, interesting state you all have there, you know, Mm -hmm. because I've done some research on a number of other things. Because, you know, we talk about a variety of topics on this show. And, you know, I talk about urban planning and, you know, these different places. And we all know right after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, that North Carolina and Texas were the very first two states to, you know, put in place these obstacles for voters. And so, yeah, it's it's been interesting watching the development of that. And there are a number of other issues happening in in North Carolina, you know, down in I think it's Duplin County or is it Duplin? Duplin. Duplin, okay, so Duplin County, they have all of those hog farms. And so you have that waste getting into the environment and the soil and, 
you know, these are predominantly poor rural, you know, communities of color, black people. You know, you have some indigenous out there and you have some, you know, Latino Hispanics out there, but mostly blacks. And that information, you know, that's something that people need to know about. Um, And also North Carolina schools, you know, you all have won awards for the diversity and, you know, the standards of excellence. And what has been interesting is how you've had people, politicians, trying to roll that back, you know, so that, you know, children of color stay within a certain section. And, you know, what was beautiful about that whole situation is that, you know, white parents as well as the black parents were out and they protested and they stopped that. You know, they stopped that whole process because the schools were fine the way that they were. And so they couldn't understand why, you know, you had people trying to, you know, um, redraw the lines in those particular districts. And, you know, just a number of things. You all have the moral Mondays down there as well, you know, with um, Dr. Barber. And, you know, it's been you know, a lot of history, a lot of good has been coming out out of North Carolina now. We've had some interesting things coming up out of there, but, you know, if you can give us, you know, a brief rundown of, you know, Wilmington on Fire and how it has activated people's curiosities, activated people to go out and start making challenges, you know, to – you know, things that were just in place, but, you know, they knew that basically, you know, a lot of their wealth or their parents or grandparents were victims of that particular insurrection. So some of the individuals, have they come back? Have they started filing paperwork to demand that property back? Ever since the film, uh, well, for for you, for your audience, uh, Wilmington on Fire is a uh, – you know, a full-length documentary on the 1898 Wilmington Massacre. And the Wilmington Massacre was pretty much considered um, the only successful coup d'etat um, that has ever happened in the United States. And a coup, a coup d'etat is an, an overthrow of, a, of an existing government. And that's what happened in Wilmington, North Carolina, on November 10, 1898. And it ushered in a full white supremacy movement, not only in Wilmington, North Carolina, but the whole state of North Carolina. And we set up Jim Crow, you know, in, in 1900, you know, two years later, throughout the whole state. And then the rest of the, the South followed suit, you know, and used the Wilmington Massacre and its white supremacy movement to just set up Jim Crow throughout the, the rest of the South. And also what what was, was fascinating with the Wilmington Massacre is that you had a lot of, you know, transfer of wealth, you know, pretty much property mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, and also Wilmington back then, before the massacre, was a majority black city. And two years after the massacre, you know, the black population was pretty much cut in half. And it just steadily, steadily just never grew back to what it was. When you got today, Wilmington is like, you know, 70-something, 70 75% white, 19% black. You know, so ever since the massacre, it – it really stunted the growth, not only for the black community, but just the whole city in general. And I think you were talking about this earlier, how, you know, these type of things, white supremacy really doesn't, it really doesn't benefit anyone as a, as a whole, you know what I'm saying? Because the city of Wilmington as a whole really could have grown into something special 
because it right. was the, 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 the largest city back then. It wasn't Charlotte or Raleigh. Wilmington was the place. But the, the massacre happened, and it just stunted the full development of the city. And there's no telling what the city could have actually been if this stuff never happened, you know, if racism, white supremacy never took its toll on, on the city. There's no telling what Wilmington could have been. But since we've been showing the film, we've actually had people who are, you know, actual descendants who have came forward nowadays okay. and have the courage to talk about what, you know, their their ancestors went through and what they've heard over the years. I know there's one gentleman we showed at one um, venue. He was an older guy. And he talked about growing up in Wilmington. And, you know, this is one of the only times he's actually talked about what happened in 1898, you know, to anybody in public. Uh, he said growing up, I think his grandparents actually went through the massacre back in the day. And he said his parents told him never to talk about it. You know, you don't talk about that stuff outside of their house. And he said if you did talk about it and you get older and you have a job, you might lose your job, you might even lose your life. You were never to speak about it. And him watching the film, you know, gave him the courage, you know, to speak, you know, after the okay. film in front of everyone, you know, and talk about the things he heard from his own parents. You know what I'm saying? And we're going to definitely have that. He, that we're going to definitely have that brother in, in Wilmington on Fire, too, as well. We'll see the film. You know, they feel, you know, they feel angry, but they also feel empowered as well. And then they also look at what's going on in government today especially in North Carolina. You know, when we show it in North Carolina, people see the same things that they put in place back then are still in effect, whether it's, you know, the voter restriction laws or, and all these things they got going on throughout North Carolina government. I think that's the one biggest thing that a lot of people take from, you know, Wilmington on Fire, especially in North Carolina, about how, you know, their town government is ran their, their, you know, and plus how the state government is still under this, you know, quote-unquote, you know, white supremacy type of rule in a way. It's covert right. now. It's not all blatant and out and open back like it was in 1898, but you can see the remnants of what happened in 1898 that's still going on through our judicial system and just going on through the whole political arena throughout North Carolina today. Exactly, and not just Wilmington, North Carolina. You know, yeah, I was talking over. about Donald over. Trump. Oh yeah, well, I was talking about Donald Trump and his White Lives Matter movement, and yeah. how we're seeing, you know, a lot of that. I wouldn't. Yeah, it was more, you know, covert, latent, but now they're being given a voice and being oh, yeah. told to shun political correctness. So, you know, whether. Trump wins or loses, I'll say, you know, the next 10 years probably will be interesting to watch. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, you know, Trump came down to people. Wilmington not too long ago. That was very interesting. Oh, so how did that you know, go? Uh, you know, it pretty much was majority white that were at the, uh, you know, that were at the rally. Um, it was very interesting, though, you know, Trump, you know, came to the the site pretty much, you know, of the 1898 massacre. And, you know, you had a lot of news people, you know, news outlets who wrote articles on it, you know, kind of talking about, you know, Trump coming to Wilmington and, and brought up 1898 and stuff like that. So it was very interesting. It was, like I said, it was your, your normal Trump rally. Your normal Trump rally. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Not you know exactly. like pretty much ninety nine point nine percent you know white, and you might have a point one percent you know token black person. <laughs> oh, who's yeah. oh, gonna get their just due? You know, yeah. they're waiting for their prize for being oh, yeah. you know. Um, brave and courageous enough to support that guy openly, which is a whole different conversation there. But, um, you know, it's been interesting. It's been interesting. But I do want to talk about something that you brought up with the older gentleman that, you know, found the courage to speak up after viewing your film. And I want to talk about that fear because we touched on it when you called, you know, when we had the conversation the last time. And, you know, that's something that I do feel that we need to address um, in this country because, you know, there have been some studies that have shown that um, African Americans, you know, genetically, you know, that some of the fear that was passed down through the generation, how it's, you know, within our genetic makeup. And, you know, it's interesting because I used to talk about that type of thing, how I felt that a lot of that fear – and anger was passed along. But when that gentleman, you know, talked about his family and how they told him never to speak of it outside of the home, I remember you were talking about some of the people who would never talk about what happened, but their family knew to stay out of North Carolina and particularly Wilmington. And do you do you feel that overall that people of color in this country are trying to you know acknowledge that fear and trying to overcome it, or do you think we're still you know silenced over here and too afraid to talk about these things because no one wants to live lose their livelihood, no one wants to put themselves in a position whereas you know harm can come to them and their families. So if you were sitting in front of a group of, you know, older African Americans now, what would you tell them in regards to the fear that was passed down? Um, I would tell them that really it's, you know, there's nothing to be scared of, honestly, because they're going to do what they want to do. And the thing is they're doing it, you know, whether, you know, we act scared or not. You know, we see it every day, you know, with these um, police officers, you know, killing us at will. Um, look at our unemployment rates. You know, we got the highest unemployment in the country. You know what I'm saying? We mm-hmm. we, we don't really own and control anything. You know, we're, it's like we're the biggest victims of racism still, and we still want to act like, you know, if we don't really do anything or say anything about it or act on it, it'll just go away. And that's that's right. not true at all, and that's why we continue to be in the situation that we're in right now. Uh, that's what really I would tell them. You know, and no, no, and you're correct because yeah. you know you have yeah. some people living under that misguided, you know, um, trope there that if they do not talk yeah. about it, it'll go away. And unfortunately, you have a lot of whites that you know try to scream that particular narrative out in an in an effort to silence us, so that they will not have to hear about it or deal with whatever guilt or anguish or what have you, you know, from being, you know, descendants of, you know, some some really screwed up laws and, and screwed up people. 
And, of course, they don't want to talk about the system that has been put in place to give them an unfair advantage. But, yeah, I believe that we need to have, you know, especially the older generation because uh, my grandmother just passed away. That's why I was not able to make it to your showing here. And my grandmother, yeah, you know, my grandmother's mother was a slave. And so my family, we're from Mississippi, and my grandmother and grandfather, you know, packed their family up, I believe it was like 1950, and they moved from Mississippi to Chicago. And, you know, talking with my mom about some of the things, she, she was telling me how badly they were being treated in Mississippi and how... You know, black men were expected to step off of the sidewalk and not make any eye contact with white women and how some of that, you know, um, continued on even when we got here to Chicago, that there would be times when my grandmother would say that to my uncles and my mom and her sisters, they would correct that. And But, you know, a lot of the racism and the mistreatment and you know, I think we need to sit down and, and talk to the older generation because they are passing on and getting this type of information from them and documenting it. I know they have a series. And that's, and that's, over, what, and that's why it's so important like the, for, for projects like this. And I've noticed this just with my own research and just doing documentary stuff is that it's very hard to get a lot of this information from older black folks. But I noticed that in the white mm-hmm. community, you know, they it's like they preserve their stuff. You know, they'll put they'll they'll turn in old photos and documents and everything to like museums and cultural centers yep. and everything. But with us, we'll just throw the stuff away. You know what I'm saying? Or the thing is, we'll throw it away because we don't know what it is. Because like the older generation never really told us what it was. You know, so we think it's just some old trash and we just throw it away. You know what I'm saying? But and I think we need to really, really um, start changing that. And I think the it needs it needs to be hand in hand. I think the 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 younger generation really needs to start, you know, reaching out to the older generation, and vice versa. And we need to really stop this whole divide amongst you know ourselves. And I'm seeing a lot of you know of the younger generation are kind of, they're just really kind of sick and tired of what's going on. They just need exactly. to channel the energy, you know, and sometimes in a different, you know, direction. But we need the we need the wisdom and the guidance from the older generation. You know, we need the older generation to kind of get out the way and let us do our thing. But we still need them for the guidance and wisdom because they've been there before. You know, they've seen it. Exactly. You know? But older people are just naturally conservative. So, you know, they're only going to do but so much, <laughs> you know, now that they're old. Exactly. You know what I'm <laughs> and they're only going to so, say so much because we've been exactly, trained because, you know, to... just being an older person, you're just naturally going to be conservative. You know, when I get to a certain age, I'm, it's going to happen to me. It happens to everybody, regardless of color, you know. Exactly. But we exactly. really need, I think the older generation really needs to, you know, start, you know, working, you know, and, and really mentoring and guiding, you know, the younger generation, like people like myself and younger, you know. Exactly. Exactly. You know, that's definitely, you know, something that needs to be in place, you know, and at the same time, excuse me, at the same time, we need to make sure that, you know, we talk to the older people, love them, you know, nurture them and encourage them 
to talk about yeah. these things because, you yeah. know, you know, I've noticed that when you allow them to tell their story their way, that they yeah. feel so much better. Some of them have yeah. so much information trapped yeah. inside of them that, you know, when they do get to talking about it, you know, it, it helps them. You know, and, you know, for some of these older generations, I know we sit back and we're like, wait a minute, you know, they can be a little cold and distant and we don't understand why. And then as they begin to open up and reconcile some of the things that they had to live through and they had to see and endure, then they start becoming more emotionally available to us. Because, you know, they're freeing themselves. You know, as they tell these stories, they're freeing themselves of some of that fear or some of that guilt. I know, you know, um, on the show a few weeks ago, I was talking about something, and I was talking about black people being on a 400-year guilt trip, if you will, and how we were put in that position to have this Stockholm Syndrome, if you will, um, feeling that guilt for, you know, being slaves and allowing ourselves to be slaves and, you know, um, upholding white supremacy and capitalism. That's a conversation that we definitely need to have, how we help to perpetuate white Mm -hmm. supremacy. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's a very, very real conversation. But, yeah, for those of you out there, if you have older relatives, break out that tape recorder or your computer or whatever and let them tell their stories. I mean, you just exactly. never know. Yeah. Exactly. And then because also, yeah, and also, you know, you'll be surprised. Because, you know, a lot, a lot of older people, they like to keep a lot of stuff. You know, they like to keep old photos and papers and letters. Those things are, are priceless. You know, those things are yeah. treasures. Those things are a part of our history as a people. And we need to really, really preserve, you know, those things and also those stories. You know, because every, you know, elder, they, they really, they, they've seen it. You know, they've been through, you know, real, real, the real deal of racism, you know, head on. You know what I'm saying? But they right. also seen some of the good stuff. Like, you know, when I would talk to, like, some, you know, some older people, you know, they talked about racism, white supremacy. But they also talked about how it was real cool where you had a full black community, you had a black grocery store, you had a black hospital, see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You, know, you, grew up, mm-hmm. you saw black doctors and lawyers, you know, on your same block. You know, your dad might be a janitor, but your next-door neighbor was like a teacher or a lawyer. Or something. You see what I'm saying? Exactly. So we had, like, even though we had racism going on, it still was some type of positive, you know, where we had to, you know, do you know do a lot of things for ourselves and have a real community, you know. So I think, exactly. you know, we can really learn a lot from the older generation, you know, just, just with those aspects to it. Exactly, exactly. And when we had, you know, our communities that way, you know, there was a lot more black wealth because we depended on ourselves and on each other to provide the different services and, you know, things needed in order for that community to fully function. And we were extremely successful at it. And, you know, I've had this conversation with other people. It's not that we don't know what to do. We can do the same thing today. The problem is how do we keep it? 
because that was the problem, you know, back then and even now. I mean, look at what's happening. You know, we know how to accumulate wealth, and then you have a certain sector that, you know, gets upset and jealous and enraged that, you know, communities of color are doing better than them, which creates, you know, like the culture that we're seeing today. And so, you know, again, we know how to create the wealth. You know, the problem is how do we keep it? And, you know, I've told people, we've talked about this on the show, we've been studied all the way down to our toenails. They know exactly how we're going to react. They know exactly what we're going to do, and the history has repeated itself, you know, over, you know, the centuries, you know, and so – what do we do? How do we keep it? Because, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I do this show, to tell people about our history. And so there is a book called Hammer and Hull, and it talks about some farmers in Alabama, and, you know, they had some communist leanings, if you will, but they were able to set up some of the largest co-ops you know, in, in the country and how their communities, you know, thrived. And, you know, there are a lot of black co-ops, and, you know, that's the direction that I'm kind of going in with this is that, you know, I'm starting to believe and feel, and, you know, I've said this over the past five years, that that's the direction that we're headed in because, again, when we talk about the currency and monetary system in this country, again, it's a social construct. But if we were to set up cooperatives and, you know, the bartering system in our communities, again, you know, you know what I fear is like what happened, you know, in Wilmington and other places that the people outside of the community will be jealous and come and take over and essentially just, you know, destroy everything that we put in place. So how do we win that game? Um, well, you know, it's difficult because, you know, you you hit it right on, right on the head, you know. Um, just like after the end of slavery, you know, we had the Reconstruction era, you know, where you had mm-hmm. you know, blacks, you know, starting to come up, you know, through the educational ranks, and you had some blacks start getting into politics and black people starting to build some businesses. Then you had Jim Crow set in, you know, and then after that, you know, you had exactly. the Civil Rights Movement, it seemed like black people were making some gains, and then you had, you know, the, the crack epidemic. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's like now you know you have jobs and everything you know instead of you know having jobs here again now they just sent the jobs away so now you have just mass unemployment of black people you know so it's like exactly. every time we kind of make some type of stride something comes in whether it's a massacre whether it's some type of um, some type of laws in place or some type of tragic event like the crack epidemic or whatever or jobs just they just send jobs away where no one's going to get a job, but we are impacted more because we don't really have that wealth to kind of carry us over or to invest and start in our own business. You know, so exactly. it's like I think and we still have to do what we got to do uh, regardless of what the outcome might be. Uh, but I think we just, when we do <clears throat> when we do for self like we did in the past, I think one thing we're going to have to do is really start arming ourselves as well and really start, you know, right. looking at our, our rights to bear arms like everyone else. Um, I think that's one of the things that's really, when I do my research, 
that's what really kind of hindered black people from really protecting themselves because a lot of times in these certain cities, just like Wilmington, they weren't able to arm themselves like everyone else, you know, so they weren't able to protect what they had and fight back like they should have, you know, been able to fight back. Exactly. Us as black people, we really need to, um, (laughs) you know, you know, take heed to our, you know, amendment rights of bearing arms. And I think all of us said, you know, if legally you can have a gun, I think you should get one. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And if exactly. we're going to do oh, this I'm thing right of setting up our community, we need to be able to protect ourselves, just like anybody else. Exactly, exactly. It's not, I'm not saying, you know, go out there and just kill people at will, no. No. But no, 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 Exactly, exactly. And I'm right there with you with the Second Amendment. I definitely do believe in the right to bear arms. And, you know, if you go back and you start looking at the history of the Second Amendment, you know, how it grew from, you know, them being slave patrols and, you know, the the militia and, you know, how all of that grew into – what we have now as the police force. And, you know, this is why I try to explain to people, every black movement that we have had in this country started because of mistreatment from the police. And it's it's important that you guys go back and look at that history and see what happened and why. And, you know, even, you know, I hear some conversations every once in a while, and I've shut many of Facebook conversations down because I have a lot of, you know, white people that are friended me on Facebook. And so sometimes I'll just sit here and watch my news feed, and every once in a while I'll jump into a conversation. So when we started with, um, when we had that uprising in Ferguson, you know, over Mike Brown and the injustice of what happened to him. And then, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement was rolled into that and it started progressing. And I saw some white people talking about, well, it would be fine if they weren't talking about violence, if they weren't being violent and they weren't carrying guns and they didn't do that in the civil rights movement. So you know I had to respond to this. And so, well, you know, I was able to have a lot of fun with Oh, you have a lot of fun with this one. Oh, man, I let them have it. That shut down that conversation. You know, I have it saved in my favorites. I go back every once in a while to see if someone is talking about it. But, you know, I put some information about the deacons of defense. And for those of you who aren't aware of who and what that was, the deacons of defense were the deacons that were part of the civil rights movement, and they would carry Bibles or what looked like a Bible, but actually inside it was carved out and they had weapons, they had guns in there. So, you know, they were protecting themselves. It's a book out saying, and the title of it is, That Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. They were armed during the Civil Rights Movement. They had to stop Martin Luther King Jr. from shooting somebody. You know, yep. and so, you know, you had all of, yeah, you know, and um, there's a book called We Will Shoot Back. I'm going to have to get him on, on the um, yeah, show. And, you know, yeah, talking about the history of black people and guns and why it's so important that we have the ability to defend ourselves. Best example and, and see, that's ever, why they've the always, black people. You notice, mm-hmm. you notice that's why they've always attacked that, that right with us. 
you know, when, you know how they always tag it if you're a felon, can't own a firearm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they always right. tag us with a felony with a quick, you see what I'm saying? Like all these exactly. things, all these laws are race-based. And it's really to, exactly. a lot of it is to really keep black people, you know, unarmed. It's unarmed and uneducated. You know, exactly. because, exactly. you know, some of the laws, if you get a certain type of conviction, you never qualify for financial aid. And they know damn well these kids can't afford college any other way. Right. Exactly. And, exactly. and then they take away your right, your right to vote. You know, and you know, and so that's slowly changing as well as far as you know different places, but it still never should have been that way, but no, you're absolutely correct, they don't want us to defend ourselves, and so you know, like I'm saying with the Black Panthers, what was so interesting is they also believed in a right to bear arms, and yeah. when they went to the state legislature in Sacramento, California. And basically went in there totally armed, and this is when Ronald Reagan was the governor of California. You know, they embarrassed him and they angered him. And so, you know, again, that's when the NRA was stating that we needed to have, you know, gun laws and limited. Yeah, you know, know, NRA is the biggest. I thought they was, you know, they supposed to be in support of that of gun rights and everything. But when they, when black people Uh, find a loophole in the law and want to protect themselves, then it's a problem. See, it has not, see the NRA, they, you know, they're a racist organization. They don't care about gun rights. They care about gun rights for white folks, and they don't want black people to have any type of gun rights. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why it's important to have these types of conversations and to break down the history of, you know, these things here. And this is why I tell people, you know, Ronald Reagan was so embarrassed and angry by the Black Panthers taking control of the legislature that when he was elected president, a lot of the laws that were passed and put on the books, you know, essentially, you know, they put black people back in slavery to a certain degree. And then here comes Bill Clinton who finished it off. And it's so interesting because when we start talking about these things, you know, people get angry. But, you know, what we just experienced with the devastating loss of black and brown um, wealth was in 2007, 2008, when the the housing bubble popped. That was was a major blow to black wealth because a lot of times, you know, having property or a house, you know, that's really – the the only type of wealth wealth source that black people ever had that you know we could kind right. of tap into, and then when that housing thing happened, that was it was a wrap. It set us back, you know, many years. Oh yeah, we we are in worse condition now than we were in the fifties and sixties. It took yeah. us all the way back, and so you know we try to explain that to people. And you know, a little earlier you brought up Reconstruction. And, you know, we weren't really a part of that. They didn't reconstruct. They deconstructed what yeah. <laughs> what we had. And, um, you know, with Jim Crow and seeing this is the thing that a lot of people, you know, miss because they're listening to these white supremacist narratives and tropes. Oh, well, there are no, you know, there are no slaves still alive and no direct descendants. I come from a direct descendant. My grandmother just died a couple of months ago. And so, but see, it's not only for slavery, but it's also for, you know, the um, black codes. It's also for Jim Crow. 
Crow. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Jim Crow was in effect until 1964. Yeah. You know, your mother and, then and it also daddy more than likely was born. Like, what's up, the city? You know, if, you know what they want to do, because you had a lot of places, um, they city or town didn't act right until, like, 1970-something. You know, even though and you have the right. saying that Jim Crow is over. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. It's yeah, so, it's, like, it's just, yeah. it's amazing. It's amazing. And that's when you get people like Phil Ferguson and Paula Dean and other white people like that that were saying that black people seem to be so much happier under Jim Crow. And that's not true. We weren't happier, but if we didn't act happy, they had the right to beat us in public for no reason at all. Black people could walk down the street, and a white person can walk up to them and and basically take their frustrations out on that black person through a beating, or they could kill them. And just, I mean, guys, this is the 50s and the 60s, and hell, shit, it's still happening today. Look at what happened with, you know, the young man in Florida, Mr. Jordan. Yeah, see, that's why films like Wilmington on Fire and stuff like that, that's why when people watch these type of films or listen to these type of, you know, radio programs, you know, talking about the history and they still see it going on, you know, that's why people like, you know, you know, say he ain't trying to stand for the flag and all that. Because see, right. e- even, the, even the celebrities and these athletes, they're starting to get it now, you know, because I guess they're seeing yeah. it in, you know, with social media and everything. Thing is, they've always captured white supremacy. Like, you can look at old pictures from the 1800s of them lynching somebody and posing for the photo. Right. You know what I'm saying? And they, and they use right. them as postcards as well. So, you know, when people are acting like, you know, well, they're capturing it now, they've always captured it and, and put it out there with, you know, <laughs> what they're about. You know, that would trips me out because, you right. know, they used to have them as, like, postcards as well. So they used to use them as mail. Exactly. You know, of them lynching a black person. Exactly. Come on. And, and that's what trips yeah, me out. It's like it's right. black people. It's like black people. We're the greatest. We're the greatest victims of this type of um, terrorism, but yet we still act like we don't know what's going on, and that's what really kind exactly. of frustrates. Exactly, and see, and the thing what you're talking about there. If you were if you were to walk into certain white people's homes, and some of them have galleries in their homes or showrooms, and you go in there and you'll see the old Aunt Jemima cookie jars, you'll see you know some of the you know um, dolls and things from that era that they put together to mock and ridicule black people, but those are collector's items and they're worth a lot. Of money. of money, and it's quite a few of them. Yeah, that have that. You know, I have some white friends been in their homes. I saw um, Nazi regalia artifacts, and you know, and they they purchase all these things and they save them and they pass it down. You know, um, I remember. You know, I used to work at a pawn shop, and someone brought in some of the weapons from World War Two some of the German weapons, and just a lot of stuff. And um, so, yeah, you know, they know that this stuff is valuable. We don't. And we tend to throw it out or, you know, not care about it, you know, let the kids use it as, you know, a soccer ball or whatever. 
And a lot of this stuff is very valuable, not only, you know, on a mon- in a monetary sense, but also our history. And so this is why I'm glad they just opened up the African-American Smithsonian Museum. Yeah. It's important that you guys get out there to see that. If you're in New York City, you have the Schomburg Library, which was started by Arturo Schomburg and Hubert Henry Harrison. It was a private museum that was later brought into the um, public library system of New York. A lot of historic artifacts there. Here in Chicago, you have the DuSable Museum. We also have the Asa Philip Randolph Museum, for those of you that are interested in the Pullman Porters and understanding our role as far as creating unions and why unions are, you know, heralded in many communities of color. It's important that you guys understand this information because, again, with Wilmington on fire, you know, it documents, you know, how we had black politicians, high-ranking black politicians. And even beyond Wilmington, if you go back, you'll see that we had senators and representatives on the federal level and how they were basically pushed out of office and how the different laws were changed. So when we do these shows, we're not doing these shows and these films and documentaries to make you angry. We're here to, you know, educate you so that you can see what happened so that we can stop it from happening again. And in the things that we're dealing with, you know, history and information is power. This is power. And so, you know, we want to empower you to know the truth. We want to empower you to be able to go out and speak on these things and understand what's happening around you. Maybe knowing these types of things will give you a better understanding of your parents and your grandparents and, you know, your great aunts and uncles and what they went through. I can honestly say by some of the studying that I've done over the past five years for this show, it has made me more compassionate and understanding toward, you know, some of the older generations. And, you know, now I understand why you did that. It didn't make sense then, but it makes sense now. And so, you know, this is a healing process that needs to be had in all of our communities because, you know, yeah, you know, we have been traumatized. You know, we have been tormented. We've been taunted. And that still continues to this day. And we need some healing. We need to find some love. Where is the love? And, you know, I talked about the Movement for Black Lives conference they had last year in Cleveland, Ohio. And when I went to that, it was just everybody was love bombing each other. Nobody, you know, some people knew each other, but for the most part, we were just meeting each other. And, you know, to be able to walk down the street and like, hey, brother, what's up? Or, hey, sis, get a hug and, you know, can I help you with this? Or, you know, we'd be at a restaurant and you'd see somebody counting their money. You know, because, you know, I guess they had a budget because that's why I took extra money with me, and I would just put it in their hand. And they would look at me, and I'm like, get what you want. You know, and, and that's how it should be. You know, so we definitely, we need a healing. We need a healing, you know, in our communities. Um, what say you, Christopher? Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. We definitely need healing. Uh, we definitely need to 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 come together as well, um, economically, politically, you know, and socially. 
Um, you know, we need right. to, you know, get rid of all these labels that we have within the black community. You know, dark skin, light skin, I got a PhD, you know, you got a GED, right. so, you know, I'm better than you and vice versa. You know, we need to really get rid of a lot of that and just focus on one common thing, that we're all black and we're all in the struggle, you know, together. And we all need to work together so we can really come out of this thing and be victorious. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I agree with you. And, you know, again, talking about the social justice movements, that's been one of the major critiques of these movements is that they've been elitist. And, you know, one thing I want to say to some of the people out there who call themselves radicals and some of the people out there who call themselves revolutionaries, let me explain something to you. It is neither radical nor revolutionary if the poor are not involved. And you need to understand that. And so, you know, this is why, you know, I talk about certain types of outreach and, you know, even the Poor People's Campaign that Martin Luther King started before, you know, he was assassinated. And there's actually a book, and it was talking about the Radical King, and Cornel West wrote that book. Now, I can hear some of you all on the other end going, ah. but what's so interesting is Cornel West was one of our heroes until he criticized Barack Obama. Interesting right. Right how that, that works. Yeah, you know him and Tavis Smiley and a number of other people. You know, it just wasn't, you know, those two particular people. And so, you know, nobody is above reproach. We are all subject to critique and criticism. You know, you just have to learn how to take that criticism and build off of it and, and you know, try to improve certain areas of your life and of your personality or of your, you know, your career or what have you, you know, whatever the situation may happen to be. But, you know, we were in love with us some Cornell West until, you know, he was like, who, where did Barack Obama come from? Until he turned on the black president. That was a wrap. You know, when you turn on the black president, man, your career, your, your whole, everything is over for you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That is what happened. But, you know, there's still a lot of truth in what, you know, Cornell West has to say, Dr. West, you know, and for some of you out there that are critiquing him or criticizing or have turned your backs on him because of his stance on President Obama, go back and look at some of his critiques. They were valid yeah. then, and they're but still valid critique. now. He's critiqued every president we've had. You know, that's what exactly. tricks me out. It's like they act like, you know, he, he critiqued Bush. He critiqued Clinton. You know what I'm saying? It's like he's critiqued every president. That's what you do. You want the president and other politicians to do better. Therefore, you give a critique. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Let's see, like people exactly. get amnesia to... because, I don't know, you know, I guess for their own personal <laughs> things, it's like, you know, you know, President Obama, he, he's a politician. You know what I'm saying? He's not hes not God or he's subject to critique. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, and he makes mistakes like the rest of us. He's a human yeah. being, you know. Exactly. And so, you know, what was interesting is, you know, I think we missed a real opportunity um, with President Obama 
because he should have been the one that we definitely pressed a lot harder. And, you know, I've stated on this show before that because of the fact that many of us gave him a pass, that, you know, when this next president is elected, you know, one of the first questions that are going to come out of their mouths are, well, why are you asking me this? Why are you telling me this when you never took this to President Obama? And they're going to tell the same thing to Al Sharpton and the rest of our um, civil rights leaders because they never pressed Obama on the issues either. You know, so they're going to definitely tell them, you know, like, nah, get out of my face. You didn't demand anything from President Obama, Mm -hmm. so why are you demanding something? Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, let me get started about my Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton (laughs) critiques. Yes, for another day. (laughs) Man, I'm telling you, you know, because, I mean, it's like, you know, I was already giving folks the side eye, but, you know, something happened with Ferguson. When Ferguson happened, I just snapped. And it was like, I can't take this shit anymore, you know? And when, you know, I saw Al and Jesse rushing to go down there, and, you know, even in Baltimore, you had Yanla and Jamal Bryant there. And in both cases, they were chastising and scolding these young people, telling them to go home and to pray about it while still asking them for donations. And so in Ferguson, they were booing Al and Jesse, and I was going in. I went in so hard on Al and Jesse tweeting directly at them. I went in so hard on them that Martin Luther King III started following me on Twitter because I was going in on the old civil rights vanguard and telling these babies, I'm like, don't let them co-opt your movement. You know, they've been sitting around getting their pockets and their bellies fat, but they haven't done shit. And, you know, but it goes and, back and to what I was saying earlier, that, you know, when mm-hmm. we get older, we just naturally become conservative, you know. And then, you know, back when they right. were younger, you know, they were deeply involved in the civil rights movement and everything, but they're old now. So they're just conservative. Like right. I said, that's that's why the older generation kind of has to move to the side, be there for guidance and wisdom but you're going to have to really move to the side and really guide these young people to continue the movement, you know, because they're, they're just naturally conservative now. They're not going to do anything, but just get some money. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, that's unfortunate. And it's just, you know, when I sit back and I watch and I see what's happening, you know, one thing that really, I'll just go ahead and put it out there because it pissed me off. Well, Robin Harris say pissed off to the highest of pissivity is when yeah. John Lewis did that sit-in and oh, then turned around yeah. and made a comment about when the cops were beating him bloody that, you know, he basically thanked them for doing their job. And, oh. you know, and you know, the rest of us are sitting over here and we're like, do we need to ship you off to Shady Pines? Is that what, is it time for that, John? <laughs> what's really good? <laughs> you know, what's really good? You notice how on? they always want black people. We always got to take the moral high ground, you know. We yes. got to take all the, the butt whippings and, and get killed and beat upside the head and everything. You know, and seeing we shall overcome and all those things and pray and all that. You notice how they always, it's always us that have to, they have to do that. Right. 
You know that, right? They always oh, yeah. want us to do oh, yeah, that. But everybody yeah. else, like the gay community, everybody else, they can kind of do their own movement the way they want. But we have to do the movement a certain way. But, yeah, we'll still get killed. You know, because they always say, well, you know, exactly. God's kingdom was peaceful. Yeah, okay, he was peaceful, but y'all still killed him. Exactly. 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 And that was because he was starting to appeal to white, poor and working class white people started listening and following behind. See, it's fine when it's just, you know, a few of us colored people. But they know, you know, when the white people start joining with us that, you know, change is going to be made. A lot of people aren't aware when they would have the slave rebellions that the white indentured servants would join in, as well as the free poor whites, the ones that were sharecroppers and tenant, you know, um, tenant uh, farmers and all of them. They would join the slaves in the rebellion. And you know, and that's and I want to make sure you all understand the white people were not slaves; they were indentured servants, which means they had the opportunity to gain their freedom, okay, that was a part of their contract. They had a contract, okay, but um, yeah, you know, just going back and looking at all of that, and it's just amazing, but you're right because you know, I had a situation most recently in which I was punished for fighting back. Now, why is that? We yeah. get punished for fighting back. And, yeah. you know, it's just interesting. But, yeah, yeah, we're expected to take the moral high ground. We're expected to take the beating. We're expected to, you know, just genuflect and kiss everybody's ass. That's basically, yeah. you know, what that is. And the thing is, is that all of the shame that has been hoisted upon communities of color, namely black community, you know, this again has been passed down through the generations. You know, they have taught us to be ashamed of being poor, to be ashamed of being discriminated against because this is happening because of something that we did or something that we didn't do that we should have been able to do, and then they scapegoat other communities of color, namely the Asian community, and say, look, this is our model minority. And even Asian people are, you know, they're they're dismissing that particular trope because they understand that it is white supremacist in nature. And this is why we have to come back and start teaching this history and putting it in context so that these young people can understand. And so what's so interesting is, you know, again, when Donald Trump, here we go, I'm bringing him back up again, when he was talking about the black community and on his, you know, um, what is it going to hurt tour or, you know, what do you have to lose tour here, you know, we do need to talk about, you know, economics and lack thereof in the black community because overall, you know, you have some studies that show that on average a black woman is only worth $1 and in other cases worth $100. And so, you know, we're going to have to aggregate a lot of these studies and peel through it and, and, and get some more information. But, You know, our communities were underdeveloped on purpose, but in addition to that, when I was talking about the 400 years of guilt, you know, we are taught to be ashamed of getting food stamps and linked. We are taught to be ashamed of getting disability and any type of government assistance. You know, initially we couldn't get it because of the Southern strategy and the Dixiecrats and the Democrats and the New Deal, and I've gone over that in depth on the show, but 
I'm going to hit it up again, you know. But, you know, we were taught to be ashamed of getting any type of handout. But yet, you know, we are impoverished, and it is done on purpose, and we need, you know, a social safety net. You know, in this country, they try to look down on these social safety nets, but, you know, everybody benefits from this. And so it's just really interesting, you know, the mindset that, you know, has been forced down, you know, forced into us, you know, whether it's through, you know, television movies or, you know, or the newspapers and all of that. Basically what's happening is, again, a big old Jedi mind trick. And they have tricked us into believing that our poverty, that our misfortunes, that our enslavement was all our fault and that we deserved it, you know, and then it goes into the myth of black inferiority and the myth of black criminality. And it's so hard to overcome those particular myths and to change that narrative, that conversation, because they've trained us to say it to each other. What about black-on-black crime? I, you yeah. know, I'm one of the very few people who would mention white-on-white white crime, you know, and then I'll go back and, you know, I'll correct it and tell them that, you know, the correct terminology is proximity hypothesis, you know, and what that shows us and tells us is that people commit crimes with people that they know more than likely or someone that lives in close proximity. You're not going to catch two trains, a bus, and a cab to go to go rob somebody. That's not how that works. And so, yeah, so it's just, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting, and that's why I'm loving, you know, your documentary, and I'm really looking forward to part two because, um, you know, this is opening up the conversations. And the fact that some of the descendants of Wilmington, you know, they, they are going to receive some reparations in one form or another. And, you know, again, this should be happening all across the country, but, again, with the culture and the environment that's set up now with this White Lives Matter movement, um, you know, a lot more information, I'm hoping a lot more information will start coming out. And so for the young people out there, you know, our little, you know, detectives and PIs out there, go to the county courthouse. Go, you know, get the microfish, sit down, take a few hours. You know, you can go to the library. They have a lot of this stuff, you know, there. And, you know, some of it is still on microfish, but they've been converting a lot of that. They've been digitizing it. And, you know, go and learn, you know, about these things, about the people in your area. So, I mean, like I said, you know, thank you because you've opened up a lot of these conversations. And, you know, when we would talk about these things, you would have some people say, oh, those are just old urban legends. But when you show the documents and, you know, some of the old footage and some of the old newspapers and even some of the old deeds and things like that, you know, documenting that this actually happened, it opens up people's minds. You know, unfortunately, it closed some other minds a little tighter, but, you know, the time has come that we have to address all of these old injustices because those old injustices perpetuate injustices that, you know, we are living in and living through now. 
And this is why it's important that, you know, that we bring this to the forefront and we continue to fight for parity, not only economically but racially and across a number of different areas because this has to stop. This has to stop. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's killing us. You know, that's, you know, there's no other way that I can put that. This is killing us. And, you know, for black people, we were never meant to survive. And I think there are a lot of white people who look at us in amazement because had they been put in the positions that we've been put in, they would have burned this country down by now. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, because you've had, you know, rebellions like that, you know, where white folks, they were getting mistreated, you know, whether, you know, they're from, you know, Italians or Germans or, you know, Irish, where they were actually they were actually doing that, you know, burning cities down, you know, rebelling against the mistreatment, you know. I think, you know, a lot of people are shocked that, you know, black people haven't actually, you know, just flipped out and just said, you know, the hell with it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And you're telling the truth. And so, you know, it's it's just interesting because while on one hand it's exciting, on the other hand it's kind of scary. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is again with this movement with Donald Trump specifically. And the thing is is that I want to make sure that, you know, I clarify what I'm saying. White men were angry before Donald Trump. You know, Michael Moore wrote a book called Stupid White Men. It actually was a, you know, pretty good book there. But this has been happening, you know, for for centuries, you know, white men being angry about not being centered. And so when you hear some of us, and especially with some of the movements, the community and grassroots movements that are out here now, you know, a few years ago, two years ago, specifically in 2014, you had white people angry because they would go out and support, you know, the protests and the rallies and the marches. And when the TV camera would come, the black people would push them to the side or in back. And so the white people were angry because the black people wouldn't allow them to speak. And, you know, it goes back to this, you know, you know, we're trying to be liberated. So why must white people be centered in black liberation? And why do you think that that's okay? And why do you think you can speak for us and speak to black rage and speak to black pain when you've never had to deal with it? And so some of them, you know, withdrew their support because they were not allowed to, you know, take the mic. And as far as I'm concerned, you were never really there for us in the first place. If you withdraw your support because we won't let you speak for us, you know, and it's just, you know, a number of things. You know, you brought up, um, you know, the LGBTQ community, and a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, with the gay movement in and of itself, it started in New York City with Stonewall. And these were black and brown, black and Latino, trans women of color who fought back. And that is how that started. 
And then they wanted to make it more palatable, if you will, for mainstream America, which means they had to whitewash it. And that is when you saw groups like Act Up and Glad, and which is why these groups that once were, you know, social and community grassroots movements, they are now corporations. And so, you know, that's what I'm telling people. You need to start questioning these things. You need to start looking for it because, you know, what was so bittersweet, excuse me, when the Supreme Court allowed um, marriage equality, when they said this is the law of the land, pardon me, basically it was a very weird position for, you know, LGBTQ people of color, namely black LGBTQ members, because, you know, some of them wanted to get married, so they did believe in marriage equality, but back to back, two days, on one day, yay, we can get married, but, you know, the other day, well, you may not be able to vote. So, you know, it is, you know, when you start going back and you start looking at these things, this is why we're telling people to go back and question and critique. And it still goes on. You know, we still have to move forward. But, you know, one of the other factors in that is while marriage equality has been put on the books, you know, federally, and it's happening all across this nation, the LGBTQ community still hasn't addressed the racism within that community. They still have not addressed, you know, the transphobia within that community and a number of other issues where there should be intersectionality. But, you know, what happens is, and I've talked about this on several occasions, you have white people who get angry with black people because we're not supporting them in some of their movements. And the main reason for it, for it is because when we join you in some of your movements and help you to attain, you know, certain goals, you, you turn around and throw us under the bus, you know, and that happened with the feminist movement as well. You know, and, you know, truth of the matter is the feminist movement was started with the first black woman who had to go and take a job to feed her children, you know, which was slavery. So it's it's interesting. Um, it's just, I don't know. You know, I don't know where we're going in this country. And, you know, part of me is afraid of what's, you know, coming But in order for us to, you know, get this liberation, there are going to be some dark times and dark situations, and there are going to be people who lose their lives, you know, and that's unfortunate. But, you know, if you go and you look at all of these uprisings happening all over the world, don't you find it interesting that America, you know, supported the people over in Egypt and, you know, in all of these other places. But when blacks started demanding that they get equal and fair treatment, now all of a sudden it's a problem. And yeah. why aren't you people happy? Yeah. You know, you know, if it wasn't for us, you'd be swinging from tree to tree in Africa. And, you know, that's another thing that's interesting because we talk about the media and the media bias. You know, I'm telling you all, you know, not everybody in Africa is featured in National Geographic. You know, and even if you go to some of those villages that they featured, those are very, very wealthy people. Don't let them trick you. You know, Johannesburg is just a miniature version of New York City. You know, so don't let them trick you. Get out there. This is why I encourage black people to travel. Get out of this country. 
go see somebody, you know. Right. And so, yeah, you know, because I think I'm going to take my mom to Ghana next year. So, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting. But, man, I mean, what say you, you know, on what's happening, you know. It's, it's, and, yeah, some people are going to get hurt. Like I said, that's that happens. It's going to happen. And so, you know, you know, where do you see us 10 years from now, Christopher? Uh, I see us 10 years from now. Uh, I think, honestly, it's hard to tell because, you know, we've right. had spurts like this throughout our history. You know, we've had spurts of consciousness, um, spurts of us kind of coming together. But then they'll do mm-hmm. something to kind of, you know, make it all go away, either provide some type right. of jobs or things like that to kind of disperse the energy, mm-hmm. disperse the movement. Um, so that's what I'm waiting on. You know, what are they going to do <laughs> to try to, you know, disperse and everything, the movement and the consciousness of our people? Um, Ten years from now, I hope that, you know, we were better off than where we are now. I hope we have, more, you know, more black businesses. I hope that our unemployment rates are down. I hope that our family structure is more intact. Um, but I don't know. You know, honestly, I don't know. You know, based right. just off the reality of things, I have no idea what we'll be. You know, but hopefully, exactly. you know, we're at a better place than than where we are now. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I definitely hope that you know we are in a much better place. And you know, again, you know, the tricks of the trade don't change. Just the names. You know, it's the same things over and over. So, you know, I want people to keep that in mind, you know, as as time goes on. And, you know, one of the things that happens, and I'll be the first one to say it, you know, even now with the movements, you know, and there are more than, there's more than just the Black Lives Matter movement out here. You know, this is why we tell people to, you know, explore, find out, look for people, do an Internet search. Whatever you're out here advocating for or you want to protest about, trust me, there's a group near you doing it. You just you just got to go out and look for them. But, you know, what happens is they wear you down, and we get tired. And, and you know, you have some people in the community that are afraid, and I get that. And while they believe in what we're out here doing, you know, they don't want to lose their livelihoods. And you know what? I'm with you. You know, my whole thing is is that, you know, if if you cannot be supported to at least meet your basic needs, then, you know, you need to think about, you know, some of these things. But, you know, you know, they wear you down, and you get tired. And you're right, they'll find certain people who do have a price, and they'll pay them that price, and then that's how you start seeing the disintegration of, you know, some of these um, movements and some of these particular communities. And, you know, not only, you know, them offering certain people certain perks or what have you, but also – you know, you get tired of fighting, and part of that fight is having to explain yourself over and over. Yes. And one of the things that I'm seeing now, which I am happy, is that it's a lot of us that are out here, and we're saying that we are tired of explaining racism to white people. 
and I talk about this all the time. You can Google everything and every damn, you know, subject you want. You, you know, you go out and you look for information about that, but you don't want to Google racism and white supremacy and white privilege and colonialism and, and how it affects us now. And it's so interesting because then, you know, you'll get into a conversation and then they want you to educate them. And when you say, no, it is not my job to educate you, they claim that it is and that if we don't educate them, then they're going to hold on to that mindset, not realizing that they were going to hold on to that mindset whether we educated them or not. We have, I mean, you know, I see little 12- and 13-year-olds out here that have more knowledge about, you know, uh, what's happening in this country than some adults, you know, and these children, they're hungry for knowledge. They're hungry for information. But, you know, you have a number of us, and we just won't do it anymore. You know, from the very beginning, you know, of this show, when I, you know, first started it, it was a few of us, and um, I always said that I was not interested in going to talk at some of these conferences and conventions because it's a total waste of time. Why must I come out, you know, to all of your meetings to tell you why white people benefit? You know damn well that you benefit, especially when it's $300 a ticket just to get into the conference. You know, so you're not having those conferences to to engage the working class and the poor. There's a lot of elitism in that as well. And so when you start talking about it and, you know, you get so, they get so angry and you get so frustrated. So, you know, again, you know, I've been saying that for the past five years. I don't want to come talk to your shit. So stop asking me. And, you know, there's a lot more people that are saying that, you know, Stacey Patton had a great article in which she said, I am not your intellectual mammy. And so, you know, guys, go out there. You know, every once in a while I'll post resources for white people to go and read to understand what's happening and to understand, you know, you you go and read this for yourself. You know, I should not have to sit here and explain this to you. You know, but, you know, I don't know, guy. I mean, I, I'm i looking at it, and I'm looking at what's happening now in this country. And 10 years from now, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, we're in a better place. And even though they claim Jim Crow ended in around 1964, 1965, all it did was, you know, they found a more, you know, a better a better way to hide their racism. It's more insidious, right? Okay. So instead of, you know, them having missing teeth and wearing dirty overalls, now they carry a briefcase and are wearing Ferragamo, right? And so it's just, you know, we have to pay attention because, to be honest with you, the way that things are being set up and the way that they're looking – is we are entering Jim Crow 2 or Jim Crow Remixed. And we need to be aware and pay attention to what's happening. And it's so interesting because talking with you now and looking at that, I have another show idea because I want to show how this is being set up, Jim Crow 2. I mean, you know, when you start talking about it, the brain starts moving you know, and my brain is in overdrive, and and part of me is going, hot damn, that is what that was. 
so I wasn't crazy when I was thinking, you know, it is just, it's, it's amazing because they'll make you think that you're the one that's crazy, you know, right. and that's how they've been able to get away with this, you know, for this long. But like I said, you know, we're going to have to work on this 400-year guilt trip that we've been on. And we're going to have to learn how to release this. We're going to have to learn how to release the shame of being enslaved, release the shame of being impoverished. It is not our fault. And we cannot pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. Most of us ain't got no strings in our boots and they got holes in them. So, you know, how does that work? You know, and so, yeah, so, yeah, so thank you, Christopher. Thank you for oh, thank putting you. that thank you out there. Yeah, you know, sparking this conversation. And we encourage you guys, you know, when this this documentary comes to your area, you know, go out to see it. You know, put together some some groups and you know, some some support groups in your area. So maybe that will draw some of the older people out. And I mean, even if it's a support group at your local church or your local cultural center or what have you, and allow these older people to tell you their stories. Let them get it out. They need to get that out of their system. So, Christopher, also, also, you are welcome listeners. back to this show. Go ahead, hon. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say also for your listeners, you know, anybody out there, wh- wherever you're at listening, you know, if you want to set up a screening, you know, for Wilmington on Fire, you know, we can try to arrange for that to happen. You can just email me at spellerstreetfilms at gmail.com, spellerstreetfilms at gmail.com. You know, hit me up, and we can see if we can uh, – you know, arrange for a screening, you know, in your town, your city, you know, your community center, you know, whatever. And the DVD is coming out. The DVD and digital download is coming out on November 10th, actual, you know, anniversary of the 1898 massacre, and it will be available on Amazon.com and also WilmingtonOnFire.com. Excellent. Yes, guys, go out. We want you to support Christopher and, you know, get your digital download or your DVD. Now, Christopher, I'll be expecting a DVD signed by you. And so, oh, yeah, you got it. You and, got uh, it. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, I got a at one point last year. And I'll send it to you as well. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, just want to let you know last year was a bit, rough and bumpy for me and so we're back on track this year so when some of your projects come out or even some of your past projects you know just hit me up we can set you know some um, interviews up and start promoting some of the other projects that you worked on and that you produced yeah, I definitely you know, want to you know, tell you more about the uh, the vampire film because the vampire project is is a very interesting project because it deals with not only it deals with like social justice uh, feminism um, a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of topics, racism, but it's told through the eyes of a vampire, you know, through a black woman who's a vampire. So it's a very interesting. Oh, woman! You know, All right now. Yeah, it's very interesting. So you know, once the deal, <laughs> the deal is going to be done Tuesday, and once I send the press release out, you know, I hit you up, and you know, I can come on and tell you, you know, a little bit more about it. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So, yeah, most definitely we got to talk about that and get that out there. And um, you never know. Do you do webcasts? Um, yeah, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually um, 
working on a book, by the way, um, and I'm going to be setting up like a webinar program. I'm showing people how to market, distribute, you know, film projects independently, you know, without the major Hollywood systems, you know, how you can make a decent living and really promote and do your own projects and promote them and distribute them um, by yourself, you know, with, with very little to no money. So Excellent. all those things are in the work as well. That is phenomenal. So, yeah, we're definitely going to have you on a few more times because, you know, we want to talk about your vampire movie. But then with your webinar and all of that, that's a separate show. And, um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm definitely excited about it. You know, excellent work, young man. We're proud of you. We appreciate your bringing this to the forefront and, you know, for those of you out there, because, I mean, there are documentaries talking about Black Wall Street and all of that, it would be absolutely beautiful if we could have a more updated version, whereas you can talk to some of the descendants and, you know, find out a little bit more about what happened in the lives of some of the families. And, you know, even with Wilmington there, you know, some of the people that fled, they went to Canada and they founded um, – Wilberforce, and so you know we have a HBCU Wilberforce and that's what University. We're talking about in the second one. That's what we're going to talk about in the second one, like what happened to a lot of these African Americans who left Wilmington after the massacre. And we're gonna we actually we felt some stuff for the first one. I just didn't use it because I felt like you know it was only going to be like five minutes, and I wanted it to be more of a focus. So I decided to do a second one based off the whole thing. But it's a town in New Jersey called Whitesboro. And it was started by George Henry White, and he was like the the last black congressman uh, right before the Jim Crow era set in in North Carolina. And he pretty much bought some land in New Jersey, Cape May County, New Jersey, and called the town Whitesboro. And it was for really a new start for not only the people of the Wilmington Massacre, but just black people in North Carolina in general. And they pretty much started that town, and the town is still there today. And a lot of the people that live there, they know the history of the 1898 massacre, and they know the history of why they people had to leave North Carolina, you know, in, in the 19, early 1900s. So we're going to really go to that town and, and, and show all that and explore that whole, you know, economy and Excellent. Excellent. Oh, man. So, man, guys, like I said, look out for it. November 10th, the digital release as well as the DVD will be available on Amazon. And as soon as Christopher puts up the press release and everything, I'll put that up there. I'll link to his site um, on the page. I'll edit the show notes for today and put all of that information. I have some of that in there now, but we're going to put some more up there. I have the link to the Vimeo, which has like the trailers and all of that information. And then I also link to the SoundCloud, but we're going to add more links to it so that you can go to the website and also, um, you know, information about the release. So we would like to thank Christopher Everett for coming out and spending an afternoon with us, and we're excited about this documentary. We're excited about your future projects, and, 
you know, again, when we have you on, we're going to talk about some of the other projects that, you know, you co-produced and you worked on over the past couple of years because I want to make sure they get some shine, too. And we can even have them on the show as well. So I'm thinking about converting a lot of this to webcasts. So, you know, it's something that, you know, that's coming up later on down the line. But otherwise, you know, we're going to keep moving forward. And so we thank you for coming on the show today, spilling all that wonderful knowledge. And, you know, people, you know, is, is, we do this out of love, you know. And it's interesting because when I tell people, I don't make any money from this podcast. There is no money to be made from this. But the wealth yeah. that comes from it is, you know, I'm able to share information with you all. But what a lot of you all don't seem to realize is that I kind of do this show for myself, if you will, because it's like I'm learning all of this information and I'm loving it. And it's like, and I got to tell somebody about it. And my friends are only going to listen for so long. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I love this. I love what we do. I love bringing this history to you guys. And, you know, like I said, you know, this is a wealth of information that we're sharing. But the best part of this for me, you know, what has enriched me the most is learning this information has made me more compassionate, has made me more understanding, has opened up my thinking. You know, I'm looking at things in a much broader view And, you know, it's also helping me to open up conversations, you know, with my family and friends and just people off the street. You never know. For some odd reason, strangers like talking to me. But, you know, it doesn't feel like a stranger. This feels like your cousin from way back when, you know. And so, you know, it's a beautiful thing, guys. Open your minds. Open your hearts, you know, and – Learn. Learn something. You should be learning something new every day. And so, Christopher, I'm going to let you have the last word. Give some words of encouragement to the listening audience, please. All right. Well, I just want everyone out there to know that, um, you know, to do what I'm doing, whether it's, you know, documenting our history or do what um, Kim's doing, you know, putting it out there on the, you know, on the radio airwaves, you know, it doesn't take a lot to do it. You just have to have the passion and drive and commitment to do it. I think all of us should do something to preserve our history and really tell our history and tell our story the right way. And, you know, that's really what I want to tell people, you know, people that might want to do documentary stuff or do documentaries on our history. You know, just look in your own backyard a lot of times and you'd be surprised what you'll find. You know, there's a wealth of history and, and, and everything, you know, within our own communities, within our own families as well. So just start from there. And, you know, don't do it, you know, for money or fame. You know, do it for telling the story and telling it the right way and preserving our history. Fantastic. So with that, we are going to release and move on. But, again, Christopher Everett, Wilmington on Fire, excellent documentary. You can find, again, some of the trailers on Vimeo as well as YouTube. So go out there. If you go over to SoundCloud, you can find, you know, the um, soundtrack, some of the information for that. Remember the date, November 10th. And, you know, again, 
We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not to convert you. One of the ways you can do that, break out that old video camera, talk to the people in your family. I mean, you can you, know, you can document the history of your family. You know, you may not ever release it to the public, but I am more than positive that your family would love that. It can be passed on through the generations. They can add more on to it. This is a way we can document and preserve our history, you know, not only, you know, the culture, but also within your family, in your family culture. So, you know, encourage you all to do that. You know, there is no job that's too small. There is no job too big. You know, if you all are having a family reunion, take advantage of that time, and maybe you'll get Aunt Ida's, you know, potato salad recipe that everybody been trying to figure out. So you just <laughs> never know, you guys. So, hey. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, giving us the opportunity to be a part of your lives. And Christopher Everett, thank you, my friend, and I look forward to speaking with you again, having you on the show. I'm looking forward to a very, very bright future for you. Oh, thank you. You know, because you're out here and you're doing it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying. Yeah, you're doing good. You know, we'll we'll, we'll get there. Excellent, excellent. So everybody enjoy the rest of your Sunday. You all take care now. All right, take it easy. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye.